all good. Hello and welcome to the Forbidden Conversations podcast. My name is Harry Weatherall and today I am joined with a very, very special guest, Mr. Davis Burton. Mr. Davis Burton is recently finished the Forbidden Courses. I'm in Dallas with me where I uh, was fortunate enough to uh, share his paths. He's a graduate of George Washington University and has spent previous experiences working for Ophelia as well as working in uh, the US House of Representatives as an intern and as well as a law firm, if I can remember correctly. Um, he's got a very interesting past. He's bounced around a little bit. After a little bit of time of Washington, he's found himself in the great state of Texas in Austin. And it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much. Well done on becoming the first Forbidden Conversation, Forbidden Courses fellow to come on the uh, podcast and not just the Pilar's fellows. Yeah, thank you for having me on, Harry. It's uh, really nice to be here and Certainly, I'm honored to be the first uh, Forbidden Courses graduate, I guess you could say. I'm glad you uh, bridged the gap from the uh, Polaris fellows over here. Well, anything for another listen. Um, let me t- so let's just jump into a little bit about, uh, about your life. Tell us about growing up. And, you know, the question I often ask the guys on, our, um, on the show and girls uh, is, what, in what ways do you think that your life was a typical American upbringing? And which ways do you think it was atypical? Yeah, that's a uh, that's a great first question. So I guess in some ways my upbringing was pretty typical. I grew up outside of Philadelphia uh, in a suburban town called Narberth, Pennsylvania. Uh, usually if no one knows where it is, I say that Lower, uh, Lower Marion is the high school down the road from me and Kobe Bryant went to high school there. So sometimes people nice. are familiar with it. Yeah, yeah they'll, uh, they'll know that one. And I lived there all my life, all through high school. I went to uh, Harrington High School. I did the IB, the International Baccalaureate program there. And I, uh, you know, I really love Philadelphia growing up. Uh, definitely a strong family route and lots of good friends there. But uh, what did you write your extended this? essay on? Oh, wait, are you a fellow IB graduate? IB, I'm better. Yeah, no, <laughs> I, am, <laughs> I am an IB graduate, yeah. Wow, okay, Many I'm just, just learning this live now. That's awesome. Yeah, I, uh, I wrote it on to what extent was the 1964 uh, presidential election, uh, a cause for continued political partisanship and, you know, worsening political partisanship in the United States. And it turned out to be really uh, relevant in the following year. So I'm glad I did it. And who was, was 64 Goldwater? Yes, it was uh, Goldwater and Johnson. And it was okay. obviously, you know, it was a blowout. And then sort of some of the policies and uh, shifts in, you know, political demographics in the United States really set up the, uh, the divide on a lot of big culture war issues that we're still seeing today, among other things. I, I, I've heard, I've heard a few people sort of cut, like come to that conclusion. Um, I don't know a huge amount about it. I, it was kind of a lucky guess by guessing on Goldwater, uh, who, bef- who I re- hear more and more sentiments are like, you know, that election is a real sleeper and had a bigger effect than a lot of people realized. Um, and it's interesting that, Hillary Clinton was a big Goldwater supporter, if I remember correctly. Yes, that was uh, something that they were digging up from her past when the election was going on because he was one of the, uh, the hardest right candidates in, in a long time, you know. But uh, I guess people change, right? How the turntables. Um, so you're in Philadelphia. You, 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 you get your way through the IB and three cheers for that. It's definitely not a... Um, uh, it's definitely not a walk in the park, and sometimes. Um, 
And it does teach you a very important skill of, how would I describe it? Navigating through complex bureaucracies and being able to maximize points by talking gobbledygook. Um, there's, <laughs> there's a course that's very important for um, IB. It's called Theory of Knowledge. I don't know if they still have that. Um, but that is, it, it, think of it as the way I sort of consider it was, uh, you know, in terms of like phil- philosophical debates, you've got, you know, Socrates and Aristotle sitting in the Athenaeum in Greece. And then you've got like 5 a.m. in the smokers section at Burning Man. And then you've got talk in terms of sort of critical thinking applications. Um, but that's brilliant. So you, you, uh, at least that was my experience. I mean, uh, and I didn't do particularly well. So maybe maybe that explains everything. Uh, you then decide. So, yeah. So, talk, so I think you've given uh, Go on, I think, will be the best thing. You're a um, high school student in Pennsylvania. Yeah. So I made it through IB uh, barely. And I was very interested in political science, the humanities generally. And so, you know, I was looking for um, what would be a good program, what would be a good fit for me. And then I was in student government at the time. So actually, when it was, came time to uh, run our campaigns, we went to Washington, D.C. to uh, film our videos, uh, me and my buddy. Yep. And I met someone who went to uh, George Washington University. He was a graduate from Harrington High School. And he gave me a tour. And uh, I ended up applying there and I eventually went there, but uh, it was by way of a transfer program where I studied at the American University of Paris for one year. So I'd say that was definitely, yeah, more of an atypical experience for me. I got to spend my first year away from home in a different country, you know, learning a different language. And that was really something that uh, throws you into the deep end, so to speak. And I'm guessing Paris, France, not Paris, Texas. Not Paris, France. Yeah, yes, Paris, France. Pardon me. <laughs> you uh, you threw me there. Brilliant. Did you, uh, no, I, 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 find, I find it so interesting how there are so many. Um, so, I guess when you have such a big country, replication is almost inevitable. Um, and even just small things like, you know, I live in Denver now. Um, and finding out, you mm. know, when you type in Denver, there's about eight different options. Unfortunately, Denver, Colorado always comes to the top, but there is a Denver in Texas as well. Um, you talked about about going to, you know, about political science, political family, or were you the black sheep? Hmm. Um, I wouldn't say a very political family. However, it may run in the family just a bit because my father was on the Hill right after he graduated college, around the same time I did. Okay. Uh, he ultimately switched to... Uh, doing fundraising for nonprofits and then, you know, executive work for nonprofits. He never really looked back. And that yep. may be the direction I'm going in as well, because I'm not sure that I really have a a, a taste for electoral politics anymore. What, how, what, what do you think caused that shift? Uh, I think it was a shift from largely optimism to something that's a bit more pessimistic, or at least me thinking now that if I, I'm going to make a big difference in my early career. I may be better off somewhere besides politics. I do think that the national sort of mood has uh, become a little bit worse from, say, 2014, 2015, when I was considering what to study. Yeah. I mean, I my experience, just observing it, is I'm always like, I've yet to be get down to D.C. yet. It's on my list of things to do. I've only been living in the States for about six months. 
uh, people call it American Rome. And, you know, as a, also a fellow student of, of American politics, it's kind of, it's where all the action is. And people say it's, a, it's an incredible experience to go, you know, over summer. You see all these kids just wandering out of Georgetown and George Washington University, suited and booted, marching off to the hill. And probably 99% of them have in the back of their mind, like, maybe I'll be a senator. Maybe I'll be a congressman. Maybe I'll, be, you know. And then you rock up on your first day and you look around and there's like 30,000 of you there. And then you look at the amount of senators and you're like, well, it's only, the odds just got a lot realer. Um, yeah. And, yes, uh, I, think, I think uh, that's an experience a lot of kids have in college, no matter what they study. It's like, okay, I was maybe the best or the second best at this in my town, or I was the one who was yep. interested in politics. But like you said, in a country so big, if there's two of those from every small town, uh, they all go to D.C. And then, I mean, it really is true. Like you, it's no exaggeration. You see people getting yep. on their suits and ties, getting on the bus or the metro and off to work. And, you know, it's like you got to go there and you got to get a Hilternship. That's just part yep. of uh, is what they call it. It's part of the experience. <laughs> I know a lot of people who've had a similar experiences going to, you know, they, they've gone to Harvard and stuff like that. And they're like, oh, I, people used to, people still talk about me back in my hometown as like being like the best swimmer they've had in like five years time. And then you rock up and there's like two kids who are going to the next Olympics. And then all of a sudden you've just become like this, you've gone from the swimmer to the, well, everyone needs a hobby kind of thing um, because <laughs> it's completely different. Um, I'd love to. So you go to George Washington. You study political science, if I'm correct or right? Um, yeah, political science and uh, history. Fantastic. I think history is a subject that everyone should uh, should definitely minor in. And um, like, what did you learn? What, what do you think you got out of learning from history? Oh well, I mean, I sampled all sorts of different courses. Like you said, I actually it was my minor as well. So because of that, they would kind of let you pick and choose. And I just learned uh, how often, you know, political themes and, you know, these sort of cycles of leadership and, you know, rise and fall of states. A lot of times there's a lot more similarities across history and across the globe. So in all the ways that we've changed and advanced as a society, also, it just makes me feel like maybe humans have been essentially similar for a very long time. Yeah, I, I came to a similar conclusion when I remember during uh I remember doing uh, 20th century European history, um, like the first half um, at school for IB, which is like, I mean, in terms of dense periods of history, that's possibly the densest one. You get two world wars, you get a you get multiple revolutions around the world. Like it's all happening. Um, and even if you just pinpoint it to like one country, like Russia or Germany, like there's a lot going on. And I remember one of the things that we used to write about, you know, like, how did all these, you know, countries, whether in Russia, whether they were in Germany or whether in Italy, like, why do they just, like, lose the plot and pick these, like, nutty-ass leaders to take them to, you know, chart a course for their country? And I remember my teacher used to get up and he's like, well, just write down that when economic conditions become precarious, people move away from the centre. And I was like, look, first off, I don't, I don't, I can't see how that follows, but, you know, it gets me the points. I want the seven. Like, yeah, sure, I'll write that down. But I also had this idea that, well, that was just a one-off and that we have gone down that path and we won't return to it. 
But now I think that particularly when I look at places in Europe, and I would say to a lesser extent America, although you know, feel correct me if you feel otherwise, like plenty of people are choosing like very unusual parties, and the more um, and the more they've been affected by austerity over the last decade, the more it seems to be true. You know, I see. I mean, the, and people talk about the big countries, but you know, Greece, for example. Has a has a political party which has a swastika in their like emblem. This is a country that was invaded within many people's lifetimes by the same organisation. So it's a uh, you, that that point you make about how history do, what is it? History doesn't repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme. Um, I think has a, um, absolutely a, a fair bit to say for it. Uh, tell me about your hill tourship. I don't. Know, I've yet to meet someone who's done one. Oh, I have met someone who's done one, but I've never just talked about it with them. What's it like when you walk into like the horse power? So mine was very unique uh, in a cool. way because this was February 2020, and I had had a great time in DC. Uh, I had worked for the energy drink company Red Bull. You know, made a lot of friends, got involved in a student newspaper, but I had yet to really do something outside of class that I thought was gonna give me some experience. And so it was junior year and I was really looking, the semester had already started. And uh, I saw a job, it was an opening on Indeed. And I'm sure you know, you know, when you're looking for a job, a lot of times these don't really pan out, but it said, you know, assistant general intern needed in the office, uh, Yvette Clark of uh, New York District 9. And they said hiring right now. I called and they scheduled an interview for the, uh, the next day, basically. It was like later that week. And the person who I was talking to, I got the impression that they were, you know, not much older than me. And as a matter of fact, um, when I got to the office, no one was even there to interview me. So the person who was at the front desk didn't know who I was. Uh, you know, I was about to go home, actually. And then all of a sudden, the staff manager just walks in and she's like, oh, Davis, Davis. Yes, I messaged you on Indeed. Come talk. And she's like, well, uh, I need an assistant. Uh, things are pretty busy here. And they said I could hire one. So how would it like it to be you? And I said, yes, right. I just wanted to get through the front door. It didn't really matter what I was doing. And so, you know, the next few weeks, I show up a few times after class a week in a suit. I have some sort of ongoing projects I'm doing. Uh, you know, I'm starting to get into the swing of things. It's a lot of paper pushing, but I'm happy to be on the inside. And then, you know, you're watching the news. You know what happens next? Uh, lockdown in March 2020. Yep. And all of a sudden, my experience is... Like I'm still an intern in the office, but I'm uh, I'm going remote. So you can imagine that this was uh, not the not the beginning of the experience that I expected. Boom. Um, yeah. One of the things that um, cognitive dissonance is a real thing. It impacts all of us. I don't know if you did that P Peter Bogosian street epistemology class. I got a lot out of that, um, and it made me think, and it also made me very aware of like seeing the weaknesses. Um, in a lot of other places. Like, so for example, um, you know, as someone who's worked in the government, the deep state, so to speak, um, I, you know, for example, I hear these stories recently with this Hunter Biden situation, which is some people will hold two contradictory, but uh, two contradictory opinions in their minds, such as Joe Biden's so old, he doesn't even know what day it is. But he's also so smart that he's running this like hyper sophisticated criminal cartel to like multiple countries and backdoor channels all at the same time. Um, and I hear it at the government stage, which is 
the federal government's super incompetent, like just try and get yourself, why does it take like six weeks to get a passport sorted? Yet at the same time, every part of our life is controlled at like ultra high, high tuned levels. You know, someone who's actually got some, who sort of looked behind the curtain. I know, I know you, you know, you're not sitting in the war room, um, I assume, uh, you know, pulling the drone strike trigger. Um, but like, how has, when you hear, like, how does that sort of shape your view of like what government is now that you've actually got a first taste of it? Yeah, sure. So uh, definitely, you know, uh, you said incompetence or maybe just it's so massive and diffuse and kind of hard to really understand what's going on at any point. You hear decisions that a Congress is making and it just doesn't really correspond to the opinions of many Americans at all. Uh, I eventually got moved to the communications team. So I was doing talking points, scripts, uh, media. Again, this was all remote and, you know, it was a it was an interesting perspective, but I was glad I was able to do a little bit more. And I think what I learned is that there were a lot of really hard working people in the office who were doing a lot, yeah. you know, in her district and running local events. But at the national level, uh, with respect to, you know, my former employer, it seemed like, you know, you're kind of just in the rank and file of voting with your party, voting with your cause. And then that is where the power brokerage happens, is that you are voting with this block of people who is going to pass massive legislation. Um, was the speech that I was writing about, you know, big national policy and her opinions on foreign policy. And then this was getting delivered in Brooklyn. Was this moving the line on that kind of stuff? No, I don't think so. I just think that that gives you kind of impression that your congressperson is really deeply involved in this. But I mean, it's all with, with two major parties, it is all about sort of that negotiation. And I think it's actually tough for even someone as powerful as a, a congressperson to be a leading voice, unless they are like a real breakout that you kind of see every once in a while. Yeah, it's um, I haven't I haven't been, as I said, I haven't been to DC, but I've been fortunate enough to visit um, the House of Parliament in the UK. And also the uh, Australian government in, like, I, I think most people in elementary school do like the trip to like DC at some point. We did the same to Canberra yes, yes. in Australia. Um, but I went to the House of Parliament in the UK when I was living there. And like in your, it's the dichotomy of what you think it's going to be like to what it actually is. I think it's very similar to what people think going to court will be like than what it actually is. Like you think that you're going to go in there and it's going to be a scene out of, you know, some Hollywood blockbuster and like it's packed with people and everything, you know, like the OJ Simpson, the cameras are there, the lawyers are just like belting each other with facts and stuff. And then you actually go to it. I had an ex-girlfriend who was a lawyer. So I went to court a few times just to like see the proceedings from the, uh, the cheap seats. 90% of it's just like, have you seen exhibit A? Oh, no, it's not. We need to get, you know, it's like locked up somewhere. Everyone's stopped. Wait, you know, it's all, so much of it's procedural. And then even then, a lot of it's like very, very slow moving. Um, and yeah, so, and then the scenes that you'll see, you know, I'm sure you've seen them on like the BBC in like the British Parliament where everyone's packed in there. They're all shouting at each other. You know, that's very true when they're making decisions like, should we go to war? Should we do X, Y, Z? When it's these things such as, you know, how big, you know, how big a dog should be allowed off a leash in like Hampstead Heath. There's like three people there. 
and they're all playing like Candy Crush on their phones, <laughs> like, you know. Um, so yeah, no. So so go on. So you, I mean, my theory on it, in the same way that the lawyers I know always describe it, it's not like suits. People say that working in politics is not like House of Cards. No, uh, it was not like House of Cards. Uh, you know, there was no none of that backstabbing. <laughs> Or even drama, really. It was more just, uh, you know, bureaucracy, maybe a bit of pettiness in the office, nothing very exciting. Although maybe if I had stuck around longer, I would have got to see some of the uh, the really exciting stuff you hear about. Yeah. Um, and my final question before I'd like to move on a little bit was, it's I, how polarized are politicians with, each, with one another? Or is because like they they even though they're like ideologically and in some ways structurally divided, they often be in the same building to get with each other for years, if not decades. Um, is it one of those things where you know people will watch it? People watch like the NBA and they'll be like surprised that all the players like at the end of the game are like slapping each other, you know, because they've all like they went to school together and stuff like that. Is it something like when the cameras are off, like there's a lot less separation or is there a little bit more? Is there more of that? So when I was there uh, briefly in person, uh, everyone was very, you know, collegial together, uh, you know, familiar. There wasn't a lot of uh, passion that you observed when the cameras were off, so to speak, either way, either animosity or, you know, it was too much familiarity. But uh, I don't know. I think kind of just looking at reports and seeing some of the things coming out of there recently. Uh, I think that maybe they're starting to actually dislike each other a bit more. I think that uh, COVID fried a lot of people's nerves, perhaps. And I think politicians are uh, no not immune to that because some of the stuff you see just coming out of uh, like they're hanging up signs across each other's offices, making fun of the other politicians, things like that. I think it's getting a little bit more. Uh, playground and not in a good way yeah no i mean my experience as a someone who's never directly involved but knew a lot of friends who are part of the like youth politics in australia um the real animosity and the real hatred was definitely not between parties it's intra um oh, yeah. like the blood like the real blood feuds you know um and if, you know, they ever, like, legalized the murder, most of it would happen in that room within, like, 10 seconds. Um, and all those, uh, the party rooms are where, that's where the real screaming matches happen. Um, yeah, I think uh, but, if Kevin McCarthy could have could have uh, done something about those those politicians who wouldn't get him confirmed earlier a few months ago, I'm sure. I'm sure his blood was boiling about that one. <laughs> um, so to, uh, we're going to sort of fork in a road here. I'm, I think I've mined the depths of your t- experience uh in government, would love to hear about your story in uh, working for Ophelia and working for opioid use and that whole impact. I'd also be interested in hearing about your decision to get involved with the Forbidden Forces. I don't actually know that much about it, despite being part of the Polaris Fellows. We have quite a separate project. Um, dealer's choice, or would you prefer to have a chat about? Uh, why don't we uh, start with opioids? Because that's sort of like, you know, it was the next step in my career. And then I'd love to tell you yep. more about uh, UATX because I was really happy with that experience as well. Brilliant. Let's go with opioid addiction. For um, our listeners both, um, why don't you give a brief summary of uh, what are opiates? Why have they come to be such a big thing in America? Um, what what are they? Have they become such a big thing in America? 
um, and what are the potential pathways out of here? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so opioids, opiates, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it, it's all medication that is derived from opium. Uh, you know, people have been aware of these sorts of pain-killing, uh, you know, use in medication for a very long time. And in fact, it has been used for a very long time, centuries, if not millennia. And yeah. um, opioids specifically refers to a pharmaceutical, like synthetic or semi-synthetic, uh, you know, the kind of things like if you get a painkiller from the pharmacy, that's generally what people are falling into. But also street drugs like heroin and fentanyl also would uh, fall into that category. Yep. Yeah. And uh, how it became uh, such a big problem in the United States is a very complicated story, but it is actually possible to sum up uh, fairly, you know, shortly. Uh, after the Congress and I, after I graduated, I started working at a law firm uh, where our client was the attorney general of the state of Florida. And she was uh, suing Purdue Pharmaceuticals, as well as a number of manufacturers and distributors of opioids. And the nature of that lawsuit was basically the two decade uh, fallout from what the state considered to be and what I considered to be, you know, illegal and uh you know, just just improper practices that really started with Purdue, but then fell down the line in a lot of big pharma. Um, early in about the 90s and early 2000s, I don't know if you're aware of this, but it was very, very easy to be prescribed painkillers for basically any medication, any condition. And that's because Purdue Pharmaceuticals had vested interest in drugs like oxycodone uh, being prescribed. And what they did starting back then was basically a, a miseducation campaign where they wanted people to believe that no matter what condition you had, no matter how severe the pain or how not severe, uh, it could be fixed by treating the pain with opioids. And as long as a doctor was telling you it was okay, uh, then it was okay to take it. Meanwhile, the doctors were actually being paid incentives uh, in order to uh, you know, keep prescribing these certain kind of medications. And it wasn't quite a bribe, but they had uh, contracts with these pharmaceutical companies where they were being taken out to expensive dinners, vacations, uh, gifts that added up to, you know, a very significant cash amount. And as a matter of fact, some of those doctors ultimately uh, went to prison. But in the meantime, as many people were being prescribed opioids in excessive amounts over a long period of time, uh, it's not hard to imagine that many of them did develop a dependency on these medications. Yeah. And then when the regulatory environment changed in about 2014 to 2015 and doctors stopped prescribing them, uh, what did many of these people do? Obviously, they did not want to withdraw. You know, they're still addicted physically. So they turned to some of these harder street drugs. And when we see overdoses happening at a greater rate, it's because people are uh, more often now using unregulated and highly, highly potent uh, drugs like heroin and, and fentanyl specifically. So interesting. I mean, I feel I have a lot of sympathy for people who are addicted to opiates um, because I know that I look at my, you know, I had bohemian friends and stuff and, you know, I'm not, I certainly wasn't a, a stickler through all my youth. Uh, but I, I, I never look at a period of my life and I think, oh, if I only I'd made a different decision here or there, I would be addicted to crack. Or I'd be addicted to meth. I've never seen anything like that in my life. But I can definitely yeah. see periods of my life where, you know, when I was in year 11 playing rugby, my 
dislocated my shoulder out in very painful uh, went to my doctor and he gave me like a pack of advil and one of those little stretchy bands to do a couple i mean our guests can't see it but like a couple of like shoulder exercises and you know what it kind of was really awkward for the first week it was a bit tough to sleep with but like two weeks later it was fine um and you know three weeks later i'm back playing and but if he had said, don't take these Advil, take this OxyContin, I would 100% said yes, because A, the pain's gone away instantly, and B, I implicitly trust you because you're a doctor and I hope that you're acting in my best care. Um, and he is obviously trying to work in my best care. If you have a, two options, like a child coming in and saying like, I, I'm struggling to sleep because of this pain I'm having, do you have anything that can take that away? If you're a naturally compassionate person, as most doctors are, and you know that, and you think there are no side effects, um, and you enjoy these like all expense paid trips to Aspen, um, it it's an easy decision to make. You know the the idea that all these guys are sort of, you know, could be featured in some like Jay Z music clip that they're like proper drug pushers is um, it is hard to believe. Um, one question I have is, though, is that is the opiate crisis getting worse? Because I could imagine that most of the people who, who who had become addicts based on very liberal distribution, who then shifted over to heroin and fentanyl, that was, as you said, 2014, 2015. That's almost 10 years ago. My understanding is by now most of those people would, that group of people was a lot smaller whether by getting clean or whether, you know, and tragically passing away. I imagine that um, once people start going down this path, their life expectancy is something that is uh, shortened, um, to put it mildly. Um, so how, how is it getting worse? Uh, I hear all these stories. I haven't been, you know, places like uh, is it Philadelphia, uh, which is really bad. Yeah. San Francisco is the one they always talk about. Um, I have. I went to Vancouver last year for a friend's wedding, and I was shocked by the amount of people who. I've told a lot of my friends about this, but in Australia and, and in other, there's not, apart from places like Singapore and the Vatican City, everywhere's got homeless people. Uh, but most homeless people I see in those countries, and the people I see in Denver, I would describe them as, in terms of like an archetype, derelict Santa Claus, like. Older guy, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Like older guys, scruffy, um, missing a couple of teeth, uh, genuinely, generally harmless, particularly during the day, um, just sort of like floating around. When I went to Vancouver, I saw like three different groups. One was like the professional homeless person. Like they weren't drifting. They had set up like a tent and like they had like plugged into the mains and like they were charging their phones with it and they had this little like, um, almost like a corner store where they were selling like various like goods and services, more, more goods than services, but I didn't exactly inquire. Um, and then there were, which is like fine, you know, I mean, I, I appreciate North Americans' uh, tendency and appreciation of free, free enterprise. Um, but the two which gave me the, uh, the jitters were like the zombies. And you know what I'm talking about, like people who are just like, you know, either they're like bent over or they are just fully disconnected. Um, and then, and, you know, I wish I had a more uh, polite and judicious word, but the nuts, like people who are like screaming at the lamppost, like hyper erratic, 
and they're the ones where they're far more. I, I'm more scared of someone who's in that space than someone who's like a Wagner group, like operative, because you think well, at least with the Wagner group operative, like they're probably responding to some form of incentives, some form of logic. You you could probably guess their next move, but with someone who's screaming at a lamppost, um, everything's on the table. Yes, yeah, there are a lot of uh, issues going on at once. Uh, you know, the sad, terrible thing that I really can't explain and I, I don't have the answers to is that right around the time this was happening and right ar- around the time, you know, the regulatory environment changed, they were cracking down on doctors and, and you know, actually trying to make a change in the, in the you know, business side of things, so to speak. Uh, this is also when the drug supply in America started getting uh, tainted so that uh, you thought you were getting one thing and you're actually getting the other, and in this case, the other is uh, fentanyl. And then in some cities like Philadelphia, there's actually uh, a new drug. It's basically like a horse tranquilizer that is getting put into the uh, supply as all. Well. So I think that that is making it worse because people who have this, um, you know, this habit, this disease, they may have been able to be saved long enough to get into treatment and helped in the past, whereas now. They are dying simply because the drug supply is uh, more lethal. And I believe at the same time in these last 10 years, just a greater proportion of uh, Americans are homeless. And, you know, the causes for that are also so complicated. So I think in a lot of sense, it's just the perfect storm. And uh, cities that do not have a plan to uh, expand, uh, respond to it, and that are kind of just waiting for a solution to materialize out of thin air, I think. Uh, that's what you're seeing in, in these cities where uh, the situation on the streets is just not good. You know, it's a failure from a bunch of different directions. I think there's a there's no limit to ways we can point to, like, things that are going wrong. I haven't been to San Fran, but I have heard some, like, truly uh, truly dystopian tales. Particularly people talk about, like, the Tenderloin and the Mission District. You know, people will describe it as a – what is my favorite description? West Coast Gotham is the way one of my friends described it. Um, but it's very easy to point out issues. I think a much more interesting thing, a much more productive thing is thinking about solutions. I know that you're working in that space, but what are sort of the solutions that people could think about at both at like maybe at the individual level, the private level, and also at the government level? Yes. So uh, the individual level, uh, the best thing to do uh, for someone who is, you know, in like an active addiction and uh, they want to get better, let's just assume that uh, entering uh, treatment where they can see a doctor and, you know, a clinician can actually assess uh, their state and what can be used to help them and somehow getting them to see that doctor, not just once, but, you know, over weeks, months, and they can take appropriate action. But the problem is that if it's only medical, medically assisted treatment and this person does not have a community base, uh, you know, a place to rest their head at night, uh, you know, work, meaningful vocation, well, then you probably are not going to see success because like the factors of their life that are driving them to use drugs will probably continue even if you're getting them, uh, you know, treatment. Uh, there are some really interesting approaches that we're seeing. Uh, I'm in Austin right now, and I believe it's called Community Works Austin. 
It's a, it's a nonprofit. And as a matter of fact, I read about it in the same article that I originally read about UTX in. And these were like the two really standout organizations in this sort of broad overview of Austin that was published a few months ago in the New Yorker. And uh, in community works, basically they have uh, a shop uh, set up. They have, you know, places where you can actually get work. And then you have uh, beds and homes and, you know, sort of like shared communal bathrooms. And the uh, people who are formerly, home, formerly homeless can come to this place. And actually, like, for example, some jobs they do, I heard they work uh, assembling jewelry for a really high-end jeweler that's based in Austin. And they're just hmm. doing the assembly pieces for it. Uh, because of that, uh, it actually, they took on a significant proportion of uh, homelessness in Austin. So the fact that you see a greater overall number compared to our, our population of some other cities, and also among the people who are still homeless, uh, more of them have shelter compared to some other cities. Uh, yeah. Not to say it's not a big problem here, but uh, you know, imagine you get someone in a program like that and actually get them medical, medically assisted treatment. I think that at the sort of uh, individual slash community level, uh, that is one path to sort of improving people's lives. And at the government level? So that's much more complicated because there's a, a big split on that. I think uh, San Francisco, to use the example, has drug policy that is uh, generally very permissive. And the, the point of that is to uh, keep people like the ones I just described who do want to get better out of the jails, uh, free up jails. Uh, and then, you know, maybe they can somehow get into treatment with the right outreach. Uh, the problem is that uh, some people, uh, and not not only conservatives, I'd say this is now extending to, you know, more moderate and centrist individuals in San Francisco. They're saying, uh, well, this impunity is now extending to uh, people who are taking extremely lethal narcotics like fentanyl and mm -hmm. using San Francisco as basically a safe enough place to turn the profit. And uh, I think a lot of people, uh, you know, find that kind of distasteful that uh, their city, because of sort of leniency in the prevailing culture, sure, you know, we do want to be incredibly passionate to people who are trying to improve their lives and in a bad situation, but uh, it should not be extended to people who are just weaponizing these, these, uh, these really tough, awful, awful drugs. I, um, I'm a big fan of um, Michael Schellenberger. Um, okay. He's written a lot about this. Uh, and, you know, he'll talk about, he's like, you, often you'll find the worst of both worlds. He talks about San Francisco a lot and about like liberalization of drug policies. And people who are proponents of it point to two examples, which are Amsterdam and Portugal. And like, I've been to Amsterdam. It's fantastic. It's a great place. Um, very, very well-functioning city. And then obviously you've got the red light district. Um, and, you know, there's plenty of people, you know, you can go into your coffee shop. I mean, I live in Denver now, you know, you can pick up, um, I can pick up like a joint or some edibles like just down the road and pick it up, you know, I'm not even a citizen. Um, and I, but the thing is like, well, you won't, and you know, I've got friends who live in Amsterdam and they pretty much have like a DoorDash equivalent of like hard drugs. Um, but what you don't see in Amsterdam is open air drug markets, and Michael Schellenberg always talks about it. He's like, streets are not for people to live in. They're not for people to use drugs in. They are places for streets. You know, this isn't like a revolutionary idea. Um, and this idea that people should, you know, be stepping over like people dying 
or homeless or, you know, or just feeling unsafe in these environments is totally unacceptable. Um, and, you know, it sucks that you're doing this, but, uh, you know, and he's probably come to the conclusion, which I think more and more people come to the conclusion, is that some form of oh, in, institutionalization probably has to come into the game at some point. Um, because there are some people who are so mentally ill that allowing them just to live on the streets. I mean, you're probably okay in San Francisco. I imagine the weather's like mild enough for you to live, to survive it in a way that you possibly couldn't in somewhere like Chicago or God forbid Dallas. Like it's warm here in Colorado, but man, dude, that was, that was a, uh, that was a steamy experience. Um, regardless, still a terrific part of the union. Uh, I think that it's definitely a complicated aspect. Um, and it's getting closer and closer to a to a resolution. Um, maybe not closer to a closer resolution. Closer, closer to a breaking point where someone's going to have to make a strong decision one way or another. Um, yes. Yeah. So, you know, in my line of work, and it's interesting because we, we are, to a, to a very large extent, in favor of, uh, you know, liberalizing many aspects of the drug policy. But the ones that we're concerned about are very much... Uh, getting people who are treatable and can improve their lives into treatment so that they can do the things that they want to do. You know, mostly when I talk to people, they say, I want to feel normal and uh, get my life back again. But then when, you know, that liberalization, as you said, extends into uh, other policies at the, you know, small governmental level. So at the cities, um, you see a much more uh, messy and sort of divisive debate and, you know, I believe it was it was Reagan who really uh, shifted the way that we can uh, conceive of institutionalization in this country, really made it uh, raise the bar by a lot, you know, sort of from a, a conservative standpoint, I guess, you know, you want people to have individual rights without worrying about the government, you know, taking you away if you step out of line. But now I do think that people are calling for that. And actually, I believe that we saw Mayor Adams in New York City uh, propose something fairly recently where it's basically just going to be a criteria uh, that if, uh, you know, a homeless individual is uh, displaying behavior that's an immediate harm to themselves or harm to others, uh, then they could be, you know, taken away, assessed. I don't know the specifics actually of, of what would happen to fall in that, but it, it would be, you know, a short-term institutionalization by definition. Yeah. Uh, it got a lot of pushback in New York City. And I believe that it was mostly actually progressive circles who pushed back against it. I don't know what, what that says, how it's sort of shifting who supports and opposes these policies. But uh, I, I do believe that a lot of the pushback I saw was was from a progressive standpoint. Uh, one of my favorite things, I this was a couple of years ago, I listened to on one of the Weinstein Brothers podcast. He talked about... We spend a lot of time, and this might be a good lead into our UATX conversation. We spend a lot of time talking about like critical thinking, um, but we should also consider this idea of critical emotions. Um, and he sort of says, you know, you've got like progressives, conservatives, and libertarians, and progressives will always res- like be emotionally re- emotionally respond to a time that they see um, an imbalance of power. Uh, conservatives will automatically respond where they see a um, an assault on tradition and libertarians will always jump in when they see a um, attack on 
um, uh, uh, a use of authority. Um, and so you'll see people who will have like, like Pavlovian responses to things, um, which even like 10 seconds of thought would make you realize like, this is such, this is a, this is not a, um, this isn't something that should be done. And, you know, for example, this example that you've given here of why progressives are sort of anti some of these measures, you walk past someone who is like obviously suffering from mental health, like high as a kite living under like a doorway. And you think, oh, well, the government needs to like interfere here and like intrude. And you think, no, these people need, these people need help. You know, like you want to care for them in a way that's probably not even really caring for them. And I can understand, uh, you know, so you're having like an emotional response and then like backfilling it with logic um, based on your own um, ideas. I'm in the same way that some people go, and maybe this is a, and maybe, I mean, now we're entering the forbidden conversations, but um, at the UATX conversation, you did the Peter Bogosian um, course. Uh, I did the epistemological exercise. I was in a course with uh, David Ruth and Dorian Abbott. Both great. Both great. I didn't know Dorian that well, but um, I've spent a bit of time with Dave. He's, he's terrific. Um, how about you tell us, tell me a little bit about how you discovered UATX um, and then tell me a bit about your experience in the program. Sure. I am happy to talk about that because, you know, uh, at the time recording this, I think I'm just three days off the last day of the program and I'm still just, you know, it was awesome. Really great experience. I discovered it three months ago, I would say, or maybe four months it was uh, right after I moved to Austin. It sounds like we moved similar times because my first day here was uh, January 7th. And someone sent me uh, an article from the New Yorker. It might have been my parents. And it was basically just a long form uh, write up on the astonishing transformation of Austin. And in that article, they highlighted key players that had come to the city uh, since, you know, going back to the 60s, I believe it was, right before the author had gotten there. And, you know, people who have kind of really shifted the character of the town. So, for example, uh, the founder of Dell was a UT graduate. And, you know, Dell coming up really transformed Austin and made uh, tech sort of a big, a big industry here. And Elon Musk coming transformed it. Uh, and then another person they interviewed was the president of UATX. And it was a relatively short, uh, you know, write up. It was just a few quotes about uh, what he was doing to really sort of shift the culture in American academics and how open he was to really getting at the tough questions and and talking about it with a fearlessness. And even though it was a short write up, it was like that. Two paragraphs stood out for me in the article. I said, this is something I could get involved in. Got out my computer, looked it up, saw the forbidden courses, and uh, started on my application. Fantastic. So obviously, I'm not surprised in the size that you're accepted. Talk to me about some of the, like, you know, I, I still don't know much about the forbidden courses. You were there for a week and talk to me what it was like and um, any advice you'd give to people who are listening to this who are considering applying for the forbidden courses. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, my understanding was that obviously your application is, you know, your academic history, your resume, what have you, but they made you uh, write uh, quite a bit. I think it was three or four basically short form essays, uh, you know, between 250 and 750 words, more or less. And what they basically said is that we're looking for people who are going to be thinking differently for this course. Mm -hmm. 
and you know differently uh, relative to each other because I viewed it as one week of just trying to give you the real spirit of UATX, which is jumping into uh, deep inquiry and questions that are difficult to have uh, with people who are academically curious, uh, open-minded, and wanting to talk about this. So in my course uh, on science and Christianity, we talked a lot about the extent to which they were compatible and not compatible. And the opinions in the course range from uh, you know, people who were committed atheists and materialists to a bunch of agnostics uh, to, you know, sort of more uh, maybe reformed Protestant traditions, Catholicism. And actually, we did have a uh, someone who was a new earth creationist. And I have never really sat down to have a discussion with a creationist of any kind about anything of substance. But after this course, it's like uh, just seeing everyone wanting to really hear people's point of views. Without jumping in, without injecting their beliefs or saying, you know, you're wrong, that's ridiculous. It was really, really heartening and encouraging for sort of the future of uh, of academic inquiry in Austin and hopefully in the country. That's really interesting. And because like a new age, I mean, that's almost like it's one thing to sort of sit down and they'll be like, I'm a Marxist. I really think that, you know, 1955 St. Petersburg was the best time, best time, best place to ever be alive. Um but this is a, maybe even enough for someone who's not religious. This is quite a like a large jump for me. Um, and tell me sort of about how you're sort of how, like what how, how you you know I've gone through the UATX pod, uh, program. Um, how how you navigated that situation where you realised that there's such a difference between you and someone else's beliefs, assuming that you're not any of those two things I mentioned, um, and maybe some of the tools that our listeners could use when they're discussing with other people um, views they don't agree with. I know it seems to be a common issue coming on Thanksgiving time, at least by the uh, opinion section of the New York Times. Yes, yes. I, I know exactly the article you're talking about. That's funny. Um, I think that really it was interesting because what I learned was that if you're in a room of people where there's not an expectation of playing got you and proving the other person wrong yeah. or proving yourself to be, uh, smarter, then really you can get to a place where you more are just interested in uh, hearing what someone has to say. And, you know, I don't have a, a STEM background, you know, to a large extent, but I've taken, you know, my fair share of classes. And even from my limited experience, I find uh, the theory of evolution, if you want to call it that, uh, very compelling to the point where uh, there's little room for doubt in my mind. And, and uh, creationists are not convinced by it. And, uh, you know, when we're talking about matters of theology and not matters of STEM, I was just interested in hearing their, their beliefs and how it relates to the world. And, you know, we weren't in a political environment. We weren't making policy and we weren't in a lab. Uh, we were there to learn about people's different religious beliefs and how it uh, corresponds, how it conflicts uh, with science. And at one point we were arguing uh, not arguing, but talking about you know how evolution really fit into uh, the Christian narrative. And uh, the atheist in the class, he pointed to the New Earth creationist, and he said, hey, guys, at least he's consistent. <laughs> <laughs> and all of a sudden, it's like, well, you know, you know, it's cool to see that moment because I think that uh, we raise more questions than we raise more answers. But uh, yeah. like I said, uh, these sorts of themes of really just coming to the table, it was reflected 
all across the course, even at dinnertime conversations in a way that mm, was not really reflected in my undergraduate experience even, which is sad to say, but, but I'm glad yeah. that after having left school, I had the chance to come back to UATX and, and hopefully stay involved for some time to come. Totally. I mean, the thing I found um, as a uh, new uh, a new American um, is that because of my accent and because I don't have any sort of like large indicators and most people, a lot of people haven't met Australian people. I think because very few people can recognize, like I, I'm always amazed when people say like, I'm a liberal, I'm a conservative. And they just like drop it out there. Um, like having grown up in Australia, maybe it's changed a little bit, but like, you know, asking people who they voted for was up there with like asking people how much they earned and like at what age did they lose their virginity in terms of like a very, very private question that no one in polite society asks each other. And you most go back people, to that, in my opinion. And if people asked, they're like, what are your political beliefs? If I want to get a little bit prickly and someone will say like, I'll, I lean left or I lean right. Uh, the only people who would say like, I'm conservative or I'm like left leaning are either like weirdos or freaks um, or like elected members of public, of, of like public government. They're like, yeah, I guess I am conservative, you know, but like, you know, I'm kind of, I don't, I don't vote straight ticket, even though I'm like prime minister sort of thing. Um, and I think that when people like instantly sort of like put themselves in those groups um, and they feel like, oh, I'm in group A and I'm talking to someone in group B, they're always, they're almost going to sort of like, turn up their beliefs a little bit more because they feel under threat. And I think because I'm not threatening because I I don't, people meet me for 10 seconds, they don't know whether I'm just here for like a layover. They don't know if I live here. They don't know whatever. And I, I haven't dyed my hair blue. I'm not wearing the cap. Um, you know, there's no sort of a, there's no sort of public indicator that I'm, uh, either way, I feel like people can uh, lean in a little bit more. And I always love sort of, because nothing, no one hates anything more they're being told by foreigners what to do. Um, one of our guys in our course is, uh, he's from Kenya. And we've talked a little bit how about, so it's more Chinese investment in Africa. And um, it's quite popular in Africa because they used to say like, every time we'd get the, every time the British would come over, we'd get a lecture. And every time the Chinese would come over, we'd get a bridge. Um, <laughs> and, you know, the bridge is a lot better, you know. And, you know, my, my sort of go-to point and something I sort of got learned a little bit about with um, Mr. Bogosian, uh, two things can be true at once is a great way to start any sentence. And I think that um, by allowing that nuance in the conversation um, can really be uh, really be powerful. I just, was just listening to New York Times, uh, the run-up before, um, and they're, they're in Iowa talking to evangelical um, voters. And I was about to turn up, I'm like, fuck. These evangelical people, they've got like rocks in their head. Like there's no way these people could be like sentient creatures. Very interesting. Very, like, very disciplined, very open, um, you know, and I came away with that feeling that you probably and, and many of your peers would have felt um, in many of the other things that you felt in uh, UETX, which was like, I didn't agree, but I've learned something and I can still see the human behind that and we can definitely work we've got possibly more in common than we thought we did and disagreements are not going to create the end of the world. And there's that real sense of hope and optimism for the future, which I feel is so often missing. Um, we've got five minutes left. Shall we jump into the uh, lightning round? Sure. I'm ready for it. Brilliant. Okay. Um, if you were deported from the U S which country would you like to go to? 
If I had to visit any country besides the U.S.? No, no, not visit. Deported. Deported. Uh, I would yeah, go to Spain. You can't come back. Spain. Why? Uh, great climate, like the people, good food, uh, sleepy economy, but I can make do. You can, you can turn it around. Uh, who is the worst public intellectual? Oh my gosh. The worst public intellectual. Okay. Can you come back to me on that one? That's uh, a great question. Yeah. Is there a crisis of masculinity in the United States? Uh, yes. And what, what does that Uh, mean to you? Uh, it means that, uh, you know, I think that uh, you see more conflicts on the Internet between men and women. And I think what that means is that we sort of just lost touch how to communicate with each other. So I think until you sort of see this bridge divided and we see that we are all uh, sort of yin and yang, uh, then I think that uh, we're not going to we're not going to really know what it even means. I think that uh, sort of focusing on yourself, though, and improving yourself in little ways at a time could be good advice for a lot of people. What topic should people conduct the street epistemology exercise on in the general public? Oh, God, that's a good one. Um, I would say uh, their feelings about how children should be educated in the public school system. That's interesting. Um, and if you had to fra- okay. And if you had to reframe that into a question? I would say uh, what values should the government and educational system in our nation be imparting on children? Yeah. Uh, worst piece of advice you've ever received? Uh, worst piece of advice I've ever received? I would say never give up. Books you haven't read, but I think everyone should read. Books I haven't read, but I think everyone should read. Uh, the biography on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Who's that? He is a German theologian who uh, criticized Christians in his community for uh, assuming that they were on the right side of God because they were Christians, but then not standing up to uh, the Nazi government. And then he actually got involved in the July 20 plot to uh, kill Hitler and was executed by the Nazis in the last day of the regime. Uh, he really, really walked the talk. Wow. And almost got out alive. Almost. Unfortunately, he got special treatment while he was a prisoner because he was uh, a very well-respected priest. Uh, But then when the uh, government was collapsing and they were uh, basically doing mass executions, he he was he was chosen to be killed as well. Really terrible. But he left behind a lot of beautiful writing. And I think that everyone should know about him, especially if you're a Christian or if you do not find the examples of Christianity uh, you're seeing today to be compelling. Uh, Someone who, you know, gives a little bit more meaning to it, I'd say. Terrific. Uh, What is an insult you received that you took as a compliment? An insight I received that I took as a compliment. Insult. Oh, an insult. Uh, People say that when they get to know me that I can be maybe goofy, but I think that it's good to uh, inject humor into a situation as often as possible when, when appropriate. AI, savior or apocalypse? I think it might lead to the apocalypse, but uh, we don't have a choice. So we might as well to make some good tools out of it while we're at it. Yeah, brilliant. And my last question, what's the best thing you've learned at UATX? Uh, when it comes time to really uh, speak up for the truth and speak up about something that you truly care about, uh, you're going to have to be fearless and there may be consequences. 
Uh, so it's just a question of not if, but when. Mr. Davis Berta, thank you so much for being on the Forbidden Conversations podcast. I really appreciate it. Hey, it was great to be here. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it.